thank you from uh, Suman and I for praying for us. It's been about oh, three or four years since we were last, uh, five years maybe since I was last preaching here, but I know that many of you have been receiving our newsletter and praying for us over that time, and we're so appreciative. And we're also so thankful to St. Michael's for for their mission-mindedness and for uh, the way that they're continuing to support us as we go to Malaysia. So thank you so much. And uh, we will be continuing to pray for you and we'll be visiting when we're back in Australia and hope our partnership in the gospel will be able to continue in that way as well. Uh, We're going to be uh, looking at Psalm 2 today. Uh, If you're having a look at the Bibles, it's page 543. Or if you're like me and you need the large print Bible, it's uh, 841. So if you'd like to turn there, and there's an outline in the bulletin as well. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we might know you and understand our world. As we read your word now about your glorious Son, please make us wise. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, why? There's a time in every child's life when they will start asking that question. Why can't I eat chocolate for breakfast? Daddy, why don't you have any hair? Why can't I see my eyes? Why do sheep sleep standing up? Now, they're they're deep questions, aren't they? At least for a child. Uh, But... They're important questions because the why questions help us to understand why things work the way they do in our world. And if you're like me, I don't think we ever grow up from asking the why questions. Hopefully they become a bit more meaningful, but even this week perhaps you've asked why. Why did yet another plane crash, killing 162 people? Why is our world filled with Ebola and terrorism and things like that? Why? Does the divorce rate continue to climb and other social problems as well? Uh, Why questions are very important because they help us to understand life in our world. And today's passage is all about a why question. Why does our world continue to reject God? Why does our world continue to reject God? God, why is ISIS so intent on destroying Christianity? Uh, Why does the the Chinese and the North Korean government see Christianity as such a threat? Uh, Why are Christmas and Easter about everything else except Jesus? Why is the only thing that our society will not tolerate is people who believe in Jesus? That's the question, why? Why? Why is our world united in its rejection of Jesus? Well, before we get into the psalm, a bit of context to help us. The New Testament tells us that Psalm 2 was written by King David. You can see that in Acts chapter 4. So he was the king of Israel in about 1000 BC. And the psalm is about King David and the circumstances of his life. But like Psalm 1, it's been placed here right at the beginning of the book of Psalms purposely for a reason. Because the Psalms, if they're about anything else, they are about God's chosen, anointed king, the Messiah. And so Psalm 2 is here to help us to know how to read the rest of the book of Psalms as well, that it's all about God's king. 
And so it's no surprise as uh, we come to Jesus in the New Testament, places like Luke 24, that Jesus says that the Psalms, indeed the whole Old Testament, was about him. Because Jesus was David's greatest son. He was the Messiah. And Jesus was the one about whom Psalm 2 was ultimately written. And so we'll keep that in mind as we're reading through our psalm today. If you're following in the outline, we're up to point one, global rebellion. See, David looks around at the, the ancient equivalent of the United Nations, maybe the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Edomites and so on. David looks around and then he asks the question, why, in verse one, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. David asks, why? He's shocked, he's surprised. Uh, Why is it that our world can't agree on anything else? But the world here, its peoples and its leaders, agree on rebellion. And what's even more surprising for David is who they're actually rebelling against. At the end of verse 2 there, it's against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed. Uh, The anointed was... Uh, the anointed was the Messiah or the Christ, God's promised king, the one who would rule over God's kingdom. And here, of course, it's David. David was the anointed one, but ultimately it will be Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ. So David looks around and he asks, why? Why do you rebel in vain? Why do you rebel against the Lord? Why do you rebel against me? Don't you know it's going to be a failure? Don't you know it's all going to be in vain? And yet rebel they do. And as we reach verse 3, we we not only get to picture their rebellion, we actually hear the words from their very own mouth. They say in verse 3, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What do these people want? They want freedom. They want independence. It's as if uh, God's rule is is slavery, as if David's reign is chains. And so they want to throw it off. They want self-rule. They want autonomy. They want freedom. But it's crazy if you think about who they are trying to rebel against. God? The creator of the universe? No wonder David asks, why do they plot in vain? And yet, of course, as I mentioned before, the nations of our world continue to rebel against God and his ultimate anointed king, Jesus Christ. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, we see the apostles talking about how this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. They've just been thrown out of the temple for preaching about Jesus and they pray. And as they pray, they see Jesus the Messiah and they see this psalm fulfilled in him. There at the cross, the whole world was united in rejecting God's king. His own disciple betrayed him. The other apostles deserted him. Pilate and Herod condemned him. The Roman soldiers crucified him. And the crowds and even the criminals next to him mocked him as he died on the cross. There was the awful day, the fulfilment of this psalm when our world was united in global rebellion 
against God and his king, Jesus Christ. And the shocking thing is that our world, despite all its divisions, despite agreeing on nothing else, even to this day, it continues to rage against Jesus and God his Father. You look at the Eastern world and the governments are still trying to destroy Christianity. It's the same in Malaysia. The Western world is the same. We're trying to cast off God's rule, systematically eliminate our Christian roots. Our scripture we're replacing with ethics. Our normal marriage we're replacing with same-sex marriage and the list goes on. And rather than welcoming Jesus and his loving rule, so many in our world see Jesus' rule as chains, see his kingship as a burden, his rebuke of our sexual indulgence, his rebuke of our materialism. We, we think to ourselves, God, is he some sign of killjoy, that all he wants to do is make life miserable for us, as if his rule was chains and all he wanted to do was sap the fun out of our lives. That's the world we live in. And this global rebellion has sought to recruit every one of us into its ranks. Now, just like Adam and Eve, we too are tempted to throw off God's rule, to ask for autonomy, to think we'll be better off not living for Jesus, but living for ourselves. But this psalm is about the foolishness of rebellion. And by the end of this psalm, we will see just how foolish that kind of a life really is. If we move to verse 4 to 6, there's a shift. It's from the nations to the Lord, from earth to heaven, from standing to sitting. And here we see the Lord's response. How does he respond? Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Uh, do you notice he, he doesn't even bother to stand for the people. He sits on his throne and he laughs. You want to rebel against me? Mock you. It's like an army of ants trying to take over the human race. Uh, you know, we might seem powerful to each other with our you know, bombs and our planes and our philosophy and our science and everything else. But what could an, an, an army of ants, even a billion ants, do against one single human being? Now, you've probably tried this as a kid, but you just need one cup of water and the whole army is decimated. I mean, how much more foolish to rebel against the Creator of the universe. He made the galaxies. He made the sun. He's all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful. I mean, do we really think we can dethrone God? Do we really think we can succeed in making ourselves king instead of God? What foolishness. No wonder in the face of our foolish attempts, God sits on his throne and he laughs mock you. But notice it doesn't just stop there. It's not just foolish. Look at verse 5. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. See, this is not 
just academic for the Lord. These actions are evil. And so God is angry. He terrifies. He rebukes. He will not tolerate such rebellion. And we see how he responds in verse 6. He says in verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now the reference here I think is probably to perhaps the coronation of David as king, looking back on that, or it might be looking forward to the coronation of the future kings. Uh, Zion, if you're not aware, was the fortress uh, on which, uh, it was fortress of Jerusalem where David made his hometown, his palace. There in Zion, God's king was safe, impenetrable, untouchable. And David, as God's king, was not just safe because he lived in a fortress. He had the promise of God behind him. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, we read of God's promise to David and his descendants. And God promised to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Uh, This promise would be fulfilled in Jesus, again, God's greater son. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, Peter will declare to Israel, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, the New Testament declares that through Jesus' death and his resurrection, that Jesus has been enthroned. He's been installed as God's king in our world. He he ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he rules and he will rule for all of eternity. Jesus Christ has his rule supported and empowered by none other than God the Father himself. And so, of course, God laughs. He's installed his king to rule forever. And we think we can dethrone him. Well, God's speech paves the way for God's king to speak in verses 7 to 9. And as God's anointed king speaks, he takes God's God's words himself onto his lips. And we start to see a bit of the relationship between God and his king. We see verse 7, the king speaks. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now David is again alluding to that promise God has made to him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. uh, Because there God not only promised that David would have an eternal kingdom, that his throne would endure forever. There in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that his anointed king would be called none less than God's own son. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, uh, God speaks and he says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Uh, There was the decree of the Lord. God's anointed king would be called God's own son. And that promise too would be fulfilled in David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Do you remember what God said at Jesus' baptism or even at his transfiguration? God spoke from heaven and he said, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was the son of God. And friends, do you see when the Bible calls Jesus the son of God, he doesn't just mean that he was divine. Uh, Jesus certainly was God the Son, divine, uh, the, the divine one. But do you see what this is saying in Psalm 2? He's saying that this one, the Son of God, that's the king from Psalm 2. This is the one that was spoken about in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. This is the king who would reign forever, who would rule over God's kingdom forever. That king is Jesus. And so Psalm 2 helps us to understand what Jesus' kingdom is like, what Jesus' rule is like. And as we look to verses 8 and 9, God speaks again to his anointed king and he makes him a promise, a profound promise. Verse 8, Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Amazing, isn't it? We have a promise here from God the Father to God the Son. And what's the promise? The nations are his inheritance. The ends of the earth, his possession. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And friends, of course, when Jesus was raised from the dead, this promise too would be fulfilled. In Matthew 28, as the risen Lord Jesus stood with his disciples as the enthroned king, he declared to them, do you remember? Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing and teaching. Uh, See, friends, even in Psalm 2, we have a basis for mission. Uh, A promise has been made from God the Father to God the Son. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. See, as we go out to this rebellious world with the gospel, we're calling on people to come again under the loving rule of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go on mission because God has made a promise to Jesus to give him the nations. But notice what he does with the nations in verse 9. It's shocking. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. It's probably not your first picture that you would get of Jesus. Uh, I don't know what you think of Jesus normally. Perhaps at Christmas we've been thinking of the baby in the manger. Some maybe we have the picture of uh, Jesus meek and mild with a sheep in one arm and a baby in the other arm, something like that. Now, Jesus certainly was the most meek and mild man you would have ever met. Jesus was compassionate and loving. But we shouldn't be deceived when we think about Jesus. This Jesus who came at Christmas did not stay in the manger. He lived, he died, and he was raised as Lord, as King, as ruler of our world. And one day, every one of us, from every nation, 
will stand before Jesus on his judgment throne and every person who has rebelled against Jesus, every person who has kept his rule at arm's length, every person who has lived for themselves instead of for him will stand before him and they will be smashed like pottery and thrown away to eternal judgment. It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? Here is the foolishness of rebellion against Jesus. There's a warning for us here. Beware, don't get on the wrong side of Jesus because if you do, judgment will come. But I think there's also an encouragement for us here. Many of us here would call Jesus our Lord. And so the encouragement for us here, if you are a Christian, if you do name Jesus as Lord, is that even though our world is united together in global rebellion against Jesus, in the end they will not succeed. They will not win. Whether it's ISIS or the Chinese government, whether it's atheists like Richard Dawkins who want God dead, it will all be in vain. It will all fail in the end. One day every one of them will stand before Jesus and they will confess him Lord as they go off to judgment. One day every evil will be destroyed, all rebellion will be put down and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this psalm leaves us with a choice. It's the same choice that was given to the original readers. How will we respond to God and his chosen king, Jesus? Will we persist in rebellion? Or will we choose the wise path? Uh, In verses uh, 10 to 12, we have the fourth voice step in. It's the psalmist himself. And he tells us what the wise response is. Uh, Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now there's the choice. Persist in rebellion and end up in destruction or submit to Jesus' loving rule and find blessing in him. Now, as we finish, I just want to draw out uh, three final implications for this, uh, for this uh, psalm, for, for ourselves, for others, and for, for God. Uh, firstly, for ourselves, then, what does it look like to submit to God and his Messiah, Jesus? Uh, do you see it there in uh, verse 11? Uh, God says, uh, the psalmist says, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Uh, They're interesting words to put together, aren't they? They're like those opposite words. Serve and fear. Celebrate and trembling. Uh, They almost seem like opposites and you wonder, how can you celebrate and tremble and fear at the same time? Well, what does it mean? Now, I don't think it means uh, that we should all be afraid of God per se. It's if we run around with our knees trembling together every time we come to church or something like that. 
Uh, God is not some evil dictator tyrant. God is a loving king and his rule, as we read here, is a blessing. But I think it does mean that we're meant to treat God with the respect that he deserves for who he is. We're to treat God with the respect he deserves for who he is. See, yes, God is our loving heavenly father. He works for the good of those who love him in everything. But he's also the all-powerful creator of the universe. And he demands submission. He demands obedience. He demands worship. And in particular, we read in verse 12, that he demands that we wholeheartedly submit to his son. Verse 12, kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. God insists that we submit to Jesus. So let me ask, is Jesus the Lord of your life? I don't just mean is he the Lord of your Sundays or the Lord of your you know the Lord of your work or something like that. Is he the Lord of everything? The Lord of your time, of your family, of your study, of your hobbies, of your eating, of your sleeping? Is he Lord 100% of your life? Uh, so many people I, I meet treat Jesus a bit like one of those Tamagotchis. Now, does anyone remember those things? The little animals that you put in your pocket and you take it out and you feed it from time to time. They were a craze for a, a little while. People tr- can treat Jesus like a Tamagotchi. They just get him out when it's convenient, give him a bit of food and then leave him to sleep for a while or something. Uh, they think that you know, if we go to church or we go to Bible study or we take the Holy Communion or we get baptised or whatever it is, then the rest of our life is our own. We can go and eat and do and play and have fun with whatever we want. But do you see what this psalm is saying? If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, well, he demands nothing less then 100% total submission, total control over every part of our life. So is Jesus the Lord of your life like that? Will you put him first this year before everything else, your job, your family, your hobbies, your stuff? Will you make him number one? So there's the first one, ourselves. Is Jesus Lord? Well, this this psalm also has implications, though, for how we treat others. It's interesting, isn't it? David begins with the question, why? Why do the people of the earth unite in rebellion against God? But did you notice he doesn't really answer that question? He doesn't give the answer why. He gives the answer how. How will God respond to our pitiful rebellion? Well, we see how he responds right at the end there, isn't it? Verse 12. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, David knows, the writer of this psalm, he knows 
that if people continue in rebellion, rebellion against God and his king, there can only be one end, destruction. And so David in this psalm pleads with his readers, stop your foolishness, give up the rebellion, turn back to God before it's too late because the fight is all in vain and it only ends in one area, the grave. I wonder if, you sh- if we share that same perspective on life as David. Uh, do we, ourselves sitting here today, truly believe that all who oppose the rule of Jesus will end up facing his judgment? That those who do not submit to Jesus as 100% Lord of their life will end up facing the judgment of hell? Because that is a sad reality, isn't it? For many of our friends, our family members, our colleagues, people that we meet in the shops, and certainly for so many in the world. Do you know 86% of the world's Buddhists, Hindus and Muslims do not know a single Christian personally? And so if they do not even know a Christian, how will they know Jesus? And how will they be saved? On the judgment day. See, like David, we need to warn our friends, our family. We need to warn all the nations before it is too late. See, if we truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will one day judge the living and the dead, that all who oppose him will be judged and sent to hell, then we'll join in the mission. We too will warn our friends, our family members, everyone around us. We will urge them to turn to Jesus as their Lord before it is too late. So that's the second one. First, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Second, do you truly believe that those who oppose Jesus' rule will be judged? And finally, one implication about God. We see in this psalm, God is ruler. God is judge. He is untouchable. He rules. But do you see his mercy and his compassion as well in this psalm? The the people here are not written off. They are warned. And the psalm, it doesn't end with judgment, does it? It ends with blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, the God who caused this psalm to be written is the same God who sent his son in the fullness of time, who sent Jesus Christ to our wicked and rebellious world and he offered us blessing. He offered us forgiveness. He sent his son to die, to take the punishment for our rebellion so that we too might be forgiven and come into God's family. God calls out to his world and he says, stop the rebellion, give up the foolishness, turn to me and I won't judge you, I will forgive you, I will bless you. And so I want to say if you are here today, maybe you're new with us, maybe a friend has brought you here today, maybe uh, you've just joined us after the Christmas services, it's wonderful that you're here because we really want you to know that there is true blessing under the rule of Jesus Christ. 
In Jesus, we have our sins forgiven. In Jesus, our rebellion is, is considered gone. We're granted eternal life. We have perfect relationship with this compassionate and gracious God. So let me ask you, if you're here and you, you know that you're not a Christian, you know that Jesus is not Lord of your life, can I ask you today, can I urge you today, like the psalmist, stop the foolishness while you can. Turn to Jesus as Lord, as your Lord. Submit to his loving rule and he will forgive you. He will bless you. He will bring you eternal life in his eternal kingdom. That is what we believe the Bible says, isn't it? And that is the heart of the gospel message. Jesus is Lord. And so if we live for ourselves or any other God except for him, there is judgment. But if we come to him, we will be saved. So will you live the wise life this year, will you submit to Jesus and find blessing under his wonderful rule? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the almighty God who created the galaxies, who rules this earth, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, Lord, we acknowledge to you our foolishness that so often we try to dethrone you, that we live our own way instead of yours, that we wish to make ourselves king instead of you. Father, we thank you for your compassion and your mercy. We thank you that you did send your son, that he died, that our rebellion might be paid for, that he rose again as Lord, as judge. We pray that you would help us to truly live for him as Lord this year. And we pray that you would help us to share the same compassion that you have, knowing that our rebellious world is perishing. We pray that you would use us in your mission this year to bring the gospel to the lost. And we pray this for the glory of your Son and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.